Uh, hi, everybody, and welcome to VitaDAO's uh, Longevity Journal Club uh, once again. Uh, this is a space for longevity enthusiasts, uh, scientists or not, to share knowledge and to talk about the latest advances on the field. Um, yeah, I'm your host, Stefano Pinilla. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at Aarhus University in Denmark, and I'm a member of VitaDAO. And today I'm here with my co-host, uh, Ariella Colorelli. I don't know if actually Ariella, you can you can speak. I'm gonna give you some moments of silence to for you to try. If 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 not, no, no. Okay, apparently you can't. You just you just try to mute yourself and you went back to <laughs> to listener uh, apparently. And now I see to Ariella as well. She's having some technical uh, technical difficulties, but she's an MD PhD candidate at Washington University Saint Louis. And she won't be able to join with audio, apparently. Maybe she will jump at some point. But if not, she will uh, try to live tweet the, the episode so you can uh, make sure to follow her. And I'm going to explain briefly. I guess you all know if you're here what BetaDAO is. But we are an open collective with the mission to fund uh, early stage uh, longevity research. We have an open call for translational project that have a potential to generate uh, intellectual property. So if you know a cool project that you think it's exciting and you think it, it's having difficulties getting funding, you can always introduce it to us and join our community. I just shared uh, a tweet uh, explaining our mission. And at the end of that thread, you can find uh, a link to our Discord, so join us. And just somehow skipping before we start the episode, if you participate today, you consent uh, uh, of being recorded. And also the content provided here is for educational purposes only, does not constitute uh, an offer or solicitation to purchase any token or security, nor it's to be taken as medical advice. And with that out of the way, I'm gonna introduce our guest today. We have wonderful guests, uh, Dr. Marcus Voim. Uh, whose background is in nutritional neuroscience and aging, and Dr. Katie Guzetta, who uh, called uh, the work during her PhD and has continued to conduct research on the gut microbiome and neuro neurodegenerative disease space. And the paper they are going to talk about today is Microbiota from Young Mice Counteract Selective H-Associated Behavioral Deficits that was published in Nature Aging on 2021. Uh, welcome, uh, Marcus and Katie. Hi. Uh, yeah, thanks for the invite. Great to be here today. Yeah, I'm delighted to be able to talk about our work. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it, it is uh, a wonderful work and I'm super excited. And actually people voted to, to speak about the topic. So I think there's going to be a great interest. Um, yeah, so I'm going to explain how it's going to work. We are going to have 30 minutes conversation uh, about a paper um, with, with uh, the, the authors and me. And 30 minutes, the last 30 minutes, we will open for a Q&A. Uh, so you can raise your hand and you will be put into stage uh, to, to ask your question. And if you prefer to do it through text rather than audio, you can always uh, write on our Twitter thread and I will read them so, so our guests can answer. Um, yeah, I will also be sharing some tweets. I've prepared some slides uh, that I will be sharing in the nest. That is this space that is on top of the screen. Uh, that I hope those slides uh, help you follow follow the discussion. Um, yeah, I I'm gonna start diving right in. 
I mean, the intersection between the microbiome and brain is something that has been looked into for some time and it offers a lot of possibilities for research. I would like to ask you first, what drove you to study dealing with aging? Why, why aging? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I'm interested in, in aging since a very long time. This really started like already like growing up and on my family's farm with healthy nutrition and, um, and good food. And so I basically uh, pursued this science path um, via like nutrition and neuroscience to uh, like kind of, yeah, understand like further, like to study um, what is the impact of like nutritional um, solutions on, on, on brain aging. And uh, at some point then the gut microbiota appeared and it made me very fascinated about this topic. And um, there, um, there has been already some studies um, before we, we uh, conducted our study, which showed like an impact of, of the microbiome on, on aging um, by transferring microbes from an age host into a young host and how this actually like change host behavior and, and physiological mechanisms. And uh, that made us intrigued about um, what what would, could happen when we do like the opposite, like um, transferring from a young host into an aged host and uh, what we can observe there. So can we actually rejuvenate um, the aged host? And and there was no, no, not anyone, um, no one has really looked on, on the brain before. So that might us really fascinated on, about what could be the impact there. Yeah, I actually, uh, I first was interested in the gut microbiome and kind of, I wouldn't say fell into the aging space, um, but the more I studied on the gut microbiota in the brain, um, which was really my strong interest, we started to see a lot of studies being published, uh, like Marcus said, showing that aged gut microbiota, so microbes from aged animals can drive aging uh, related immune responses in, in younger mice. And eventually we started to see studies talking about driving aging in the brain when you give younger animals uh, microbes from aged mice. So like Marcus said, we wanted to see what was happening or was it even possible to rejuvenate the aging brain by targeting the gut microbiota. So that's why we conducted the study. And um, and so I, I kind of, I wouldn't say fell into it, but Marcus really drove the um, thought behind it and I was lucky to be able to get involved and push it even further. I mean, it, it is a fascinating topic and, and I think it's a really great segue because for me, one of the, I mean, I'm not a microbiome researcher, I'm a cardiovascular researcher, so I I don't even most of the time consider uh, the, the microbes in our gut as part of the equation, but but I find the, the, the relationship between the gut and the brain incredibly fascinating. Could you like, because it, it's been described as what, what is called the gut-brain axis and that relationship between, yeah, our, our central nervous system and the brain and, and our digestive system, besides, of course, the, the natural like nerve connection. And I've just shared this slide. And, and could you speak a little bit more of these uh, link or, or the role that the, the microbiome, the microbes living in, in our gut play in the communication between, between gut and brain? Yeah, sure. Um, okay, do you want to go, go ahead? Yeah. Go for it. Okay. So, yeah, uh, I mean, there's actually, um, it's, it's, when we talk about gut brain access, this is really a collection of like different pathways and, and mechanisms. 
And it's important to note that this is bidirectional happening. So like the gut can influence the brain and, and vice versa. Like for instance, like when we are like, when we have like exposed to stress that can affect um, um, different, it can affect the metabolism um, of the gut microbiota it can lead to like decrease in diversity, uh, but also vice versa. Um, it can affect like different um, aspects such as um, emotional well-being, but also what we now show um, and what also others have shown before can also affect like um, cognitive processes. So this is a, a collection of like different pathways, which includes um, uh, pathways through the immune system um, or through um, gut hormones, which are released um, either uh, by the microbes or by uh, by endro endocrine cells. This is a specific uh, cell type in the gut. Um, there's also um, a communicate. Um, there's also an effect um, through the um, um, stress axis, uh, which is centrally regulated. So it's regulated in the brain and then can um, in a um, can then affect uh, the gut. Um, there's also other aspects such as neurotransmitters, which are released from from gut microbes, uh, such as for instance GABA. Um, and um, so also there's um, a, a bunch of other um, pathways. Right. So like Marcus said, um, sorry, it was a bit of feedback. Um, like Marcus was saying, um, when you're hungry, you know that you're hungry, but your hunger um, is, is really coming from your gut and your stomach, right? So there's always been this feedback between the gut and the brain, this constant communication, top down and bottom up. So your brain's communicating with your gut and your gut is communicating with your brain. And what we're learning to realize is that the trillions of bacteria and other organisms that live inside of our gastrointestinal tract have evolved to take advantage of this communication to also communicate with the brain. Um, so Marcus talked about there's immune pathways um, where immune cells can pick up responses from the gut and they can either relay the signals or directly go up into the brain and uh, make actions within the brain there. There's also direct pathways through the vagus nerve and enteric nerves um, that touch along the gut and can send signals up to the brain. Um, there's also the potential that bacteria can produce different metabolites and do different um, and secrete different hormones and such, or alter other metabolites that our own cells have made. And those metabolites can go through the bloodstream and affect other cells around our body, including in our brain. Um, and the gut bacteria also can affect the local processes that are occurring in the brain, such as um, impairing the intestinal barrier. So then there's more leakage of harmful or pathogenic bacteria or metabolites or other things that shouldn't be um, in our bloodstream, for instance, where the bacteria may have originally been doing the damage on um, the intestinal barrier, for instance. But of course, it can go the other way around. Bacteria are extremely beneficial and important, and we also know they're really important for maintaining brain health. Okay, the, the, this is really fascinating because, I mean, of course, it's, it's kind of obvious if you think about it, we have really a lot of bacteria uh, and and of course the the things that these bacteria are producing not only bacteria but microbes in general in our gut is is probably going to affect us in any way so so i think i think it's super fascinating and of course here we're talking about aging and and of course during our lifetime there are a lot of things changing besides not only in in our own body but also in our environment and 
there have been some studies talking about about how these these environment uh, and and microbiome in our gut changes with aging. Could you speak a little bit uh, on that? What are the changes, or or how can um, these these microbiota change throughout our lives? Yeah. So um, in terms of um, changes um, across, um, so I mean. One um, key factor is already like um, when we are like um, when during uh, during birth, like the the mode of um, of birth um, is really a key factor which can already influence the composition, but also functionality of the gut microbiota, C-section versus uh, vaginal born. Uh, we generally believe um, that um, the the, um, the microbiome is um, rather. Um, stable during adulthood. However, this is now got actually recently challenged by a paper which was published yesterday from the Beckett Lab. Um, there is actually, um, and maybe Katie, you can. Um, you saw, I saw you tweeting about it. Um, you can maybe <laughs> sure, come I can. Or... I can come in here if you'd like. So the bacteria throughout your lifespan is highly dynamic and whatever you consume, your diet and other activities that you're doing, like exercise, the stress that you're exposed to, these sorts of things can affect your physiological state, but also they affect your gut bacteria. And aging is a huge determinant of what bacteria are actually able to live in your gut. And we don't fully know why that is yet. When you're um, young, like Marcus was alluding to, birth mode can have a big effect on what bacteria originally colonize you. And when you start to wean onto diet or onto solid food, um, there's a big explosion in the, the diversity of bacteria that are in your gut. And this diversity kind of declines and stabilizes during um, the adulthood process. So I would still say it's quite stable during adulthood, but there are a lot of processes that can perturb it. And stability is very, very relative here, meaning that when you're young or when you're old, um, there's less stability in the gut bacteria. So that's that's what we generally understand right now. Um, now, as you're continuing to get old, and we see this across a bunch of different species that have been studied, including rodents, dogs, monkeys, and of course, people. There's um, a change in the bacteria that are present in your gut. Um, for instance, in aging, um, in, in humans, we see that there's an increase in specific family of bacteria like Bacteroidales. Um, and also there's other bacteria such as Acromansia, which we see an increase um, in, the, in the gut as well. But there's also some bacteria that might be growing in the aged gut that might not be so beneficial um, or have been linked to not being so beneficial. One of these might be, um, for instance, uh, Bacteroidesiae, so or Bacteroides. So for instance, this bacteria, there was one study that was conducted by a group out of Seattle led by uh, Thomas Wilmansky that found that if you're an elderly individual and you have a higher prevalence of this one um, bacter bacteroides uh, strain of bacteria or species of bacteria um, or a low microbial uniqueness, you have a higher risk of mortality um, once they followed up these people after four years. So that's really interesting that they're seeing that there's this link between the specific bacteria in your gut and the actual like health span or, or lifespan of these people. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. So if I just for, for listeners then uh, to clarify a bit and also for myself. So 
in terms of how the the population of bacteria that we get in our microbiome gets established, to say so, it happens. You, you've said mainly at, at birth, and then at some specific points, or or is this something more more continuous that that we can somehow alter depending on our environment? I I, I didn't understand completely that that. So birth sets the scene. When you're born, you're first exposed to microbes um, through the vaginal canal, or if you're born by cesarean section, your first contact would be more from like skin microbes. So that's a really big determinant of the early life gut microbiota. Um, but of course, there's a lot of other factors that, that can influence um, your, your body and your microbes. So one of the main things that drives what microbes might be living within you is your diet. So what you um, eat directly feeds them. And there's the saying, you are what you eat. And in this sense, it's very true. Your microbes are what you eat. So through diet, some microbes thrive better when you eat more fiber. Some microbes like more fatty foods. So depending on the sort of diet you're consuming, there's a, a good there's there's definitely a, a strong evidence suggesting that your microbes are responding to that. They're changing daily um, depending on what you consume. If you are into intermittent fasting, there will be different microbes that are or different energy states of the microbes that are um, present and responding to the fasting um, or ketogenesis that you're going through. So diet is a big determinant of the gut microbiota. Other things like exercise is ex exercise can have a big role in, in what microbes are there. Um, if you're stressed, for instance, stress can also have uh, consequences on your gut microbiota. And we don't fully understand to what degree these consequences or benefits are recoverable or how long term they might last. It might be more of a daily sort of thing where if you have a very healthy diet and you have one cheat day, maybe that's actually detrimental or maybe it doesn't matter. So those are the sorts of things that we're still trying to understand. But what we see is that aging is a very big determinant of what bacteria live in your gut. And that's something that we don't really have the ability to change. So diet, exercise, those are beneficial. Um, stress is not so beneficial. Um, an unhealthy diet is not so beneficial. So a high fat, high sugar diet um, from our understandings at the moment. Antibiotics. So if you have to take antibiotics, of course, those will have a really big impact on the microbes that live in your gut. Um, and, and aging is a huge player in what bacteria live there. But there's still ways that we can tweak the gut microbiota through aging. Yeah, and I, and I think that's precisely when, when you and your work come in, because as, as Marcus previously said, there were some previous papers showing that, okay, if you uh, transplant poop from uh, all mice into young mice, they start having some uh, cognitive problems that, that look very much like, like the ones that aged mouse have. And there are then there's also this, this paper showing uh, increasing lifespan in fish. So they do uh, fecal transplants or transplant of, of poop basically from young fish to older fish. And, and these fish li live quite short, so it's kind of easier to do than, than with mammals. Um, and and then they observe increase in lifespan, and and that's precisely where you try to 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 cover that gap in knowledge with with your study. You try to basically transplant poop from young mice into old mice and see if that improves some of these cognitive. So basically, the opposite of of what the previous literature have been doing. So trying to improve the the, the 
um, cognitive state of these uh, aged mouse with with uh, uh, poop from from young um, mice. And would you care how, to explain how you exactly um, did this? And I'm I'm going to share now the the slide showing more or less the, the method you used. Um, I'll describe this, and then maybe Marcus can talk a little more about our study. So. Um, Fecal microbiota transplant is usually abbreviated to FMT. This is a technique that's increasingly common in the medical field, actually, for treating some um, very nasty infections like those caused by C. difficile, um, which typically would be um, treated with antibiotics, but it can be um, it can be quite pervasive and not be treated immediately. So FMT has been shown successful to treat this sort of disease and has been increasingly explored as a potential for um, treating other diseases too. So what we did is we used this fecal microbiota transfer to take microbe or take the poo essentially from young mice and from aged mice, um, but we transferred the poo from young mice into our aged mice recipients and to match for that, to control for that transfer, we also transferred poo from young mice into young mice and also from aged mice into aged mice. So we can see typically the effect that you'd get from an aged microbiota in aged mice um, versus also the effect of aging by comparing our, our young mice to our aged mice. And, and, and just, just a question because I, I, the transplant was through, it was oral. So it was through oral gavash, wasn't it? That is kind of like... Yeah, exactly. So mice are coprophagic animals, meaning they eat each other's poop. Um, similar to your dog, if you have one, they might be quite excited to eat poop sometimes. Um, but we did this through an oral means. So we did oral gavage to transfer our uh, microbes from our young mice into our aged mice. And uh, so, yeah, we, are used, we used FMT, um, so fecal microbiota transplant. Um, there are also other studies um, which looked on the transfer of microbes between um, different hosts. Um, for instance, just by co-hosting, as Katie already uh, alluded to, um, through the um, um, yeah through the um, aspect of coprophagia. And, and and one question because I know that when when this is done in the clinic, as as Katie has has pointed out, that this this is actually a treatment that is done with in. In humans to treat these uh, nasty infection by uh, Clostridium difficile that is kind of of difficult. Sometimes it's done, and and I know that in in some other animal models also that that happens is done. Uh, previously, you you give antibiotics to kind of clear out the the previous uh, microbiome in the gut, and then to kind of like make the transplant more more efficient. Uh, as far as I know, you didn't do that. Could you speak a little bit uh, why? And this is maybe a little bit more more technical, but I'm actually quite quite curious. I mean, it seems that the way you've done it is kind of less uh, uh, invasive, or, or you uh, affect less the the mice. But but I would be interested to to know. Yeah, indeed. Uh, so this um, we did it. Um, like, yeah, we did not use antibiotics. Uh, there was um, a couple of, of reasons for that. Um, one was also the aspect that we uh, wanted to see, like, um, whether without uh, wiping out uh, microbes, if we can actually influence um, the, um, if you can, like, uh, if that can have an impact our FMT on, on the aged host. Um, another aspect was also maybe more on the technical side. Um, 
we um, like we did see quite an impact on on the antibiotic. Um, so we did a, a pre-trial where we had some impact um, with the um, antibiotic mix on on the young mice, and we wanted to make we were not. Um, so yeah, we were not basically because we had quite um, old mice we used. Um, we were not sure about the impact of this antibiotic mix on these old mice because they were already um, at a stage um, of um, of, de um, of um, decline of lifespan. Maybe Katie, exactly. So, as Stefano, you're completely right. It's typically quite common to see antibiotics used to first kind of clear out the system of the the gut bacteria that's already there. Maybe try to eliminate some of those negative uh, bacteria like C. difficile. Um, before you introduce your FMT or your gut bacteria population that you're bringing in. But it's not always done. Um, and we decided not to do it for the two reasons that Marcus mentioned. We were worried that our aged mice might be a little too frail because you, of course, see an increase in frailty during aging. So we weren't sure how they would handle the antibiotics. But we also um, thought more translationally as well, if potentially there's a the, the, if there's an opportunity to create a sort of probiotic, could we introduce that into the ecosystem without needing antibiotics in order to see an effect? So there's a few reasons why we chose not to use antibiotics here, though it is usually the standard when you're doing FMT. The antibiotics can also have off-target effects, and we wanted to avoid that potential as well, meaning antibiotics, um, some of them can leak from the gut and might have effects on other, or other organs that we're studying, such as in the brain, which we obviously yeah. didn't want. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that makes a ton of sense. And I, and I think it, I like particularly like the translational perspective. So if we are thinking about, because of course, FMT, it's, it's used in the clinic, but it's kind of like not, not easy to do and, and not very convenient. Probiotics are much more convenient. And I think this is a good, like, uh, idea to to get it closer to to a proof of concept or like it are are actually probiotics possible, and and actually you did see a change in the in the in the microbiome of these uh, mice doing it. You, I think you did it like uh, twice a week, and and did you you did observe uh, some some changes in in this uh, in the mice transplanted with with well actually in all the mice what did you find more interesting about the the changes in the in the population of microbes you you found in the gut right so first of all when we looked at the microbes of these mice we can see that there's a clear distinction in our aged mice versus our young mice so we're seeing that effect of aging in the gut microbiota um, I think what I found the most interesting is certain species of bacteria um, are pretty much not present in the aged gut versus young, and it could be vice versa too. But what we saw in our study was that young mice had this one um, genera of bacteria called Enterococcus that our aged mice didn't have at all. And when we gave our, our um, aged mice this young microbiota transfer, they were colonized with this enterococcus bacteria. So the, to me, this means that some bacteria, even though they might not live uh, naturally in, in these mice in their aged guts, um, they still are able to colonize. And I think that's, that's interesting because if enterococcus was the species that's driving the changes that we see in the brain that we'll discuss later on, um, it's good to know that some bacteria like this could stick and, and not just be a transient sort of effect. Marcus, would you like to come in as well? 
Yeah, I think it was really fascinating to see like this um, some specific bacteria here um, um, increasing. Um, so, like in terms of Enterococcus, there was um, this is also kind of in line with um, some previous research which found um, pro um, and sorry anti-aging effects um, when it was given in a cocktail of different Enterococcus strains. Um, also, there has been now a recent paper um, showing like in um, a positive impact of enterococcus on or a regulatory impact of enterococcus in, in on social behavior. So that's um, um, a bacteria which um, comes up now quite often in in the literature. Um, in addition to other um, other bacteria which has been shown in 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 longevity being implicated, such as Acromantia. So the other thing we can do with the gut bacteria is we can predict um, from our bacterial um, sequences that we get, we can predict what pathways the bacteria might be coming in and taking uh, action on within the gut and the brain or between the gut and the brain. Um, so in, in doing so, we found that there's certain pathways that the bacteria um, from young mice might be affecting in the aged mouse. And that includes um, short chain fatty acid uh, degradation and synthesis and maybe we can talk more about that later but short chain fatty acids are really important for um, they're, they're molecules that the gut bacteria can produce um, when they're fermenting fiber and um, we know that some of these short chain fatty acids can um, directly translocate from the gut and go up into the brain um, so there was recently a paper showing that one of these known as acetate um, that's produced by the gut bacteria can go and in, in, go up into the brain and influence the uh, response of immune cells in the brain, which can have a really important role on um, memory and cognition because these immune cells are very important for clearing debris and also supporting neuronal activity. So that's also something that we um, we're looking at within our gut bacteria, the ability for these bacteria to act on the gut brain axis. Yeah, and and I think it's it's one of the things that that you that you see and you look at, particularly in the immune system, and and you can see now, uh, listeners can see in the figure I've shared that that you looked both um, you look at the immune function in the in the gut and in the brain and also in the blood, and what you saw was yeah, basically that that in the age mice you had these um, as you can see in the figure that you have more of these killer T cells that are like the food soldiers of the immune system. So are the ones that actually kill the, the infected bacteria. So you get more of that activation that suggests kind of like more um, inflammation in the gut. And, and you see more, more also more activation of the microglia in the brain um, that is measured by, by uh, measuring the body of, of, the, of these uh, cells that are, uh, as you said, a KT in charge of, of clearing. And, and I, I'm interested to see like what's your take, because then when you look at the blood, you don't see that much of, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, anti-inflammatory effect. And how would you explain that? Because the effect locally in the brain and in the gut seem, seems uh, quite, quite clear. Um, maybe Marcus would be better to come in here, but yeah, we do see strong effects of aging on some of the cell types that we measured and some of the ways that we see um, these cell types expressing certain markers. 
Um, in that aging-related response, some of them were able to be rescued when we gave our aged mice the transfer of microbes from younger mice. I think it is a really interesting point that when we looked at the mesenteric lymph nodes, which are in the gut, or gut-associated essentially, they're not quite in the gut, but they're in the fat around the gut, um, and when we looked in the blood, there were some effects that we saw in one <clears throat> specific um, tissue or in the blood that weren't present in the other, which is, is what you were talking about. Um, it could be that these immune cells are trafficking, for instance, to a site of inflammation and, and are responding locally to that site. And maybe that's why we don't see them come up in the blood, um, but we do see them in, in the mesenteric lymph nodes, for instance. Um, my, maybe Marcus could give a little more insight here. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so indeed, uh, we, um, we see quite um, a different pattern um, um, in, in terms of systemic circulation versus um, what um, Katie pointed out, uh, these gut-associated um, lymph nodes. Um, so what what was interesting, yeah, in, indeed, it could be like um, it's something related to immune cell trafficking. Um, we specifically see like an immunosenescence uh, phenotype in the systemic circulation, which may have also um, affected to a degree um, the uh, um, innate immune cells. So um, yeah, we are yeah, we are, this was an interesting uh, result, and um, where we are like um, yeah, further want to understand on on how what are what are these um, how is it actually um, how these changes are affected there. Um, there could be other um, potential routes um, which could also maybe make the link with the brain um, in terms of like the, the lymph system, the lymphatic system. Um, so this is something which, um, which would be excited to, um, to look into it further in, in future. In, in terms of the brain, so um, here we were um, interested in this link uh, between immune cell trafficking from monocytes, which are released from the bone marrow um, and which would go into the circulation. And they can then, as, as Katie already pointed out, they can traffic to um, um, sites of inflammation, such as in, in this case, the, the brain. Uh, and then they can actually um, influence um, the uh, innate immune cells in the brain, um, the, the microglia. And so this is what we were interested because we had previous um, data uh, which showed that um, modulating a microbiota composition, uh, in that case through prebiotics, um, inulin, um, can actually um, influence these monocyte trafficking to the brain and then subsequently microglia activation. So we were interested in, in how actually um, the, um, the transplant, uh, where we did see these um, changes um, on, on the bacterial level, but also in what Katie pointed out in inherited functions in terms of um, that we see this uh, changes in short-chain fatty acid metabolism um, can affect actually uh, microglia in, in the brain. And yes, so... And I... Sorry, Marcus, continue. I didn't want to, to interrupt. Uh, no worries, sorry. <laughs> it was not clear. Um, so yeah, so and then we looked actually, so first we were um, interested in, in how, um, how it affects um, the um, immune cells in the brain. So we looked on, we used like um, a technique called immunist chemistry um, to look on um, uh, microglia activation. But then we also were further interested in how does it affect um, 
die, die Interplay of, um, of microglia in terms of um, sensing functions, because microglia um, have a key role, for instance, also in processes um, such as um, cognitive processes, such as, um, and, and, and in cognition, there's um, a couple of processes which can influence um, cognition, but I guess we come to it also later. Maybe I park it to later that point, um, but we were also, we did also um, transcriptomic analysis to understand better um, the uh, sensing functions of microglia and if they are affected through the transplant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a, it's a really nice, uh, really nice transcriptomic uh, study to do, and you find uh, some some very interesting, very interesting things. I, I would just like, since we are uh, more or less a little bit um, more than than half of the episode, in, I will I will just like to uh, open the stage. In we are gonna keep uh, going through through your your results, of course, but if anybody wants to ask any question, feel free to uh, request for permission to speak. Um, and you can do it down in, in the screen. Or uh, again, feel free to write uh, questions in the in, in the thread. So so guest uh, can, I will, I will read them and our guests can answer. And I'm also sharing some, uh, I realized doing some really wonderful live tweeting of this episode and I've, I've just shared uh, some of the tweets that that had a lot to do with what uh, was uh, what Marcus was discussing on the potential uh, different mechanisms uh, that could link the change they observe when they transplant young poop into old mice, and these um, uh, this this study actually opens a lot of of possibilities and and a lot of different potential venues of of study, but. But let's let's continue to to the uh, what I think is one of the most probably one of the most uh, interesting parts of of the study that is actually the the effect in the behavior of of the animal, and yeah, well, you also measure actually. I, I would first like to comment on on the effect in the metabolism of of the brain uh, that you found there some some quite. A strong effects in, in in some of the of the um, metabolites that make the, the brain look somehow younger. Would you like to um, tell us what you find more more uh, worth worth mentioning or more, more surprising when you looked at the at the data? Sure. Um, so what we did is we took a pretty general approach of looking at very broad range of metabolites um, in specifically in the hippocampus of the brain. And that's also where we had been seeing the effects on the immune system. So um, we can talk more about the hippocampus in a minute when we're talking about behavior, but it's very important for cognition and memory um, processes. So the hippocampus um, of the brain, we took we did a metabolomics approach and we took a look at all of the different metabolites that are found in the hippocampus. And we saw in aging, there's this huge effect um, in the hippocampal metabolome where there's a lot of different metabolites that are either upregulated or downregulated um, in the aged mouse hippocampus versus the young mouse hippocampus. Um, and when we looked at our aged mice who received the gut microbiota from younger mice and compared them with our, our aged matched controls, um, we saw that there were a lot of metabolites. In fact, there were 35 metabolites that were actually significantly 
reversed towards the levels of what we saw in our younger mice. Um, so the fact that our microbiota transfer from young mice into aged mice was having such a substantial effect on reshaping the hippocampal metabolome um, was pretty exciting and could also be one of the ways in which our gut microbiota may be affecting um, the behavior, which we'll talk about just in a minute. You know, it's it's really, really fascinating. So it's, Basically, you, you were able to, to see how by transplanting poop from uh, young mice to old mice, you could change how the, the, um, the hippocampus was metabolizing certain, certain uh, and producing certain metabolites that, that made it look younger. So it's, it's actually talks a lot to, to the effect you would you will see later in the, in the behavioral studies. And could you... Talk a little bit uh, of of what these these tests that you did, uh, what they were. I just I just shared the the slide where you can see uh, a scheme of the different tests. One was the water maze, and the other the elevated plasmase. That actually that that result is is super interesting to me, and, and we will uh, talk later about it. But could you explain what's the how how the water maze test is done, and and what what does actually measure? Sure, I can discuss this. Um, so the Morris water maze basically is a test for um, mouse spatial and long-term memory. Um, and mice are really good swimmers, just like other rodents. They're very good at swimming, um, so they don't have a challenge when they're put into water. And what we do is we put them into like a kiddie pool of water and we hide a platform somewhere in the tank. And, and that stays there the entire time. And their goal is basically to find that little platform. And once they do, they can stand on it and, and they hang out. So they get trained on how to find that platform using uh, visual spatial clues that are in the room. So there's like a big X on one of our walls. We, we put another uh, rectangular cue on the other wall and they can see these cues when they're swimming around in the water so they can orientate themselves. And over a series of five training days, the mice get pretty good at learning where exactly the platform is and, and they like to swim over to it and, and hang out there. So what we see is that in aging, um, there's a big decline in, in the aged mouse's ability to actually find the platform uh, throughout the number of training days that we look at. So they, um, they don't go there as um, quickly or they don't go there as um, efficiently, I should say, as our younger mice do, meaning that they probably don't necessarily know exactly where the platform is. They didn't have changes in their locomotor activity, so we don't think that's a factor here. Um, and when we gave our aged mice um, microbes from younger mice, we saw that that effect was actually rescued to a large degree. So our aged mice who got microbes from younger mice were better at finding that platform throughout the training days. And on the final test day, so that's the training period, on the final test day, we actually remove the platform and let the mice swim around and we measure how long does it take for the mice to go towards the area of the arena and into that area where that platform was previously hidden. So do they remember where exactly they're going? Um, and with aging, in our aged mice, we saw that there was a reduction in their the time that, or sorry, there was an increase in the time that it took for them to go to that region of, of the maze um, or of the water pool. But when we gave our aged mice microbes from younger mice, they didn't have this latency to, to um, 
to go there that the aged mice did. So they not only had better learning ability, so visuospatial learning ability, um, but they also were able to retain that. So their long-term memory was also improved according to this test. It, it, it is a really nice test that, that allows you, uh, it's, it's very interesting how it allows you to measure both learning and how fast you learn, learn and how much they can remember. And this might be a, a little bit of a stupid question. Again, I've never done behavioral studies in mice, but could um, the, um, the um, uh, uh, sight, so the loss of sight with aging affect these, these longer uh, time they take to find the, the, the platform when they age or... Again, I, I don't know if that makes any sense. I don't know if a, actually um, vision plays a role here, but. That's a really good question. And, and we've been asked that before. Um, so the way that I would respond to this is we did a number of different behavior tests, including this test. And um, what we see, especially in this test is there, the HMI still have the ability to learn where the maze is and they would need to rely on, on visual clues in order to do that. But I think even if um, there was an effect um, in the, the eyesight of these mice, which, which from these, this test and our other tests, we don't expect there to be, um, perhaps the gut microbiota from young mice might also be able to improve that in a separate, uh, separately, which we, we didn't look on at all. We didn't investigate eyesight, unfortunately. That wasn't our primary outcome. Um, but that is a good question and, and perhaps it should be addressed in the future. No, definitely, there are a lot of possibilities, and and I think that's a, a great segue to to for for me for for me it was like the most shocking result on the on the paper or the most impressive because it's really really astounding effect that is the effect on on anxiety behavior and you measured these using uh, what what listeners can see in the in the slide the the elevated plasmase. Could you explain a little bit how these tests, how how these tests is performed, and 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 again, uh, how does it, yeah, correlate with with anxiety behavior? Yeah, sure. So this test is the elevated plus maze, and basically, what you do is um, mice are prey animals, so um, they like to hide in in enclosed areas. So in this maze, it's shaped like a plus. Um, when you look from the top of it down at it. And there's two opposite facing arms that are enclosed. So they have these, these big walls and they're more sheltered. Um, and then there's two arms that are on the opposite like angle um, that are considered open. So they don't have walls. Um, they're just kind of like a, like a platform that you could walk out on. Um, so we let our mice explore that arena for five minutes and we measure how often they go out into that open arm and explore into what would be a more of an anxiety provoking uh, part of the arena for them versus when they're staying in that closed off uh, space that makes them feel maybe more comfortable um, or where they wouldn't be uh, having so much anxiety. And what we see here is that there wasn't really a difference between our, our young and our aged mice um, in the time that those mice spent in the open arm. Um, and honestly, I'm, I don't really think we were expecting anything there, but we wanted to measure it anyways because this was quite an exploratory trial. But what was interesting um, is that when we gave aged mice microbes from younger mice, um, they actually spent more time in those open arms, which indicates that they might have uh, less of an anxiety-like uh, behavior or, or phenotype. 
compared to our young or our aged mice. So that was really interesting. It's especially interesting because we didn't see a, a age effect, so a change with aging. But when we gave our aged mice those microbes, it, it had this remarkable effect. Um, we aren't entirely sure why. Um, that wasn't... Um, I, I guess um, there, there are some potential avenues which could be potentially explained by our look into the hippocampus. So like I mentioned earlier, the hippocampus is really important for spatial memory and, and, and learning processes, especially long-term uh, memory. Um, but it's also involved in anxiety-like behavior. Um, so there's a chance that what we're seeing could be related to the changes in the hippocampus that we're seeing. Um, but it could be more driven through the amygdala or other brain regions that we have yet to investigate. Yeah, maybe to add on this. Um, so, yeah, there could be a different mechanisms at play here that could be maybe related to um, what to the immune changes we found, uh, but could be also related to the um, um, metabolite changes um, we have seen in the hippocampus. Um, as um, Katie already pointed out, um, anxiety-like behavior is regulated through different regions in the brain. This includes hippocampus, which we assessed, but also as, as Katie pointed out, um, for instance, the amygdala, um, which is a key player in, in stress and anxiety regulation. For instance, when we have to give a talk, um, our amygdala um, uh, shines up and it's uh, quite activated. Um, but basically, back to the potential mechanisms, um, we um, did some correlation analysis uh, with um, the metabolites which were changed in the hippocampus and the effect on the anxiety-like behavior. And um, according also to the hypothesis, for instance, um, the metabolite called GABA, gamma amino butyric acid. Um, this is, for instance, involved in... Um, in, in calming and calming effects. And indeed we see here like a correlation, of course, this is now not, um, uh, this is not causality, but it's uh, for sure something, um, this is definitely something to look into further in the future. Yeah, it, it definitely gives some some interesting, interesting clues. And uh, I would like to, uh, we've received a question from uh, a listener through through the thread and, and I'm gonna read it. it it's uh, at Noravin asking, and, and she asked what we can do later in our lives to shift our gut bacteria. Well, it's actually two questions. That, that one first, and then she, she asked, seems that research shows that young poop of animals affect older animals of that species. Is that also true for humans? I was reading about a case around these for dealing with uh, grand, uh, gut bacteria issues of a patient. So if you want to take first the, the, the first question, what can we do later in our life to shift our, our gut bacteria? Um, I mean, there are a plethora of things which we can do. Um, as uh, Katie already pointed out earlier, there's, uh, for instance, um, diet um, has a major impact on, on the gut microbiome, and there's um, a couple of uh, strategies uh, which can positively impact um, the, um, the microbiota, so for instance, like yeah, um, an enriched like Mediterranean diet, for instance, has been shown and um, to influence it positively, also linked to uh, improvements in host outcomes such as frailty, for instance, um, but also um, others um, like um, um, 
pre-verdicts, um, like a fiber rich, um, of course, not every, not every fiber is a pre-verdict, but, um, but yeah, fiber enriched um, diet, for instance, while um, on the other side, um, hyper diet or um, high sugar would uh, negatively affect um, microbiota. Um, yeah, so the, I might just add to that. Yeah. Um, I might just add to that. For instance, there was a study that was uh, conducted out of our um, peers at the APC Microbiome Institute in Ireland, where um, they did an intervention using the Mediterranean diet. So um, you, you're probably familiar with this diet, but uh, it's inspired by the Mediterranean region where you have a lower intake of, of sugar and fatty uh, processed foods and a higher intake of leafy vegetables, fish and fish oil and, and whole grains and, and these sorts of foods, um, fruits and vegetables and, and grains and, and fish. Um, and what they saw was that the Mediterranean diet in elderly individuals uh, did improve, um, it altered the gut microbiota. And what's really interesting is that in having this Mediterranean diet intervention, these elderly people um, had reduced frailty and also improved health status after the, the trial. And I don't think that's necessarily like mind blowing. We already know that diet is super critical for your health, um, but it's also really critical for the health of your gut microbiota. And through the gut microbiota, this diet might be acting. Yeah, I'm, I, I come from Spain, so I'm, I'm quite familiar with, with the Mediterranean diet and a big supporter, of course. I, I've lived in Denmark for Quite a long time but i still eat exactly the same and i think i think it's uh it's it's been shown the, to be very positive in, in different uh contexts so but yeah and what about the second question because it's actually that i also something that i also thought when reading your paper because as, as you have mentioned at the beginning um fecal transplants have been done in humans is there any uh, observation of oh if if one of the donors is an old person does this affect uh, the young person being treated for uh, clostridium difficulty or difficile or or yeah i think that's a really important consideration because we know that from preclinical studies um, transferring microbes that are associated with unhealthy phenotypes can also transfer that phenotype. And I'm not just talking about these sort of immunosenescence and aging responses, but we've also seen that when you transfer microbes from obese individuals, um, the obesity can transfer, uh, the phenotype of obesity can transfer. When you transfer from lean individuals, that can also support um, becoming slimmer in, in these obese rodents. Um, we also know that uh, phenotypes of depression can transfer when you give um, rats who are completely naive, the microbes from depressed humans. Um, so we, we see that microbes play a critical role in multiple brain and, and body processes. So um, selecting your donor, let's say, is, is very critical. Um, so, what I will say is there's not so much evidence done in humans yet. We only published this study uh, several months ago. And so it takes a little while to be able to build the evidence that um, not only is it potentially therapeutic, but also it's not harmful before we can go into clinical trials. Um, but what we have seen is that in 
there's there's been a few case studies that have come out. And by that, I mean that there's a few individuals who are elderly individuals um, who've needed to have a fecal microbiota transplant for other reasons than uh, cognitive health. So for instance, there were two individuals and this, these were two separate case studies. Um, and both these individuals had uh, dementia associated with Alzheimer's disease and they had the C. difficile infection. So they, um, ended up being treated with a fecal microbiota transfer. And interestingly, following those uh, FMTs, the elderly, the, these two patients, um, not only did they respond um, in their C. difficile clearing up, but also they actually had improved cognitive function when it was measured several weeks later um, in both of these separate studies. So I think that's the first gleam of evidence suggesting that in humans, um, the gut microbiota could be a, a therapeutic target as well. Yeah, that, that's super interesting. And I, I'm sure after, after these, after your work in, and, and these other observations, there will be much, much more work done in, in this space. And it's actually really exciting. Um, I want to be mindful of time because we are, uh, we have three minutes to the hour. I don't know how much you can stay afterwards, but I will still like to uh, give the audience an opportunity to to ask questions. If, if not, I have like a huge list because definitely this uh, this this is a fascinating study with with very important implications. But but I would like to give some uh, space for for uncomfortable silence. So so the the audience ask uh, raise their hand and ask questions if they if they have them. Well, then I think that that has been that has been enough. <laughs> but I will I will ask. Um, I, I will I would like to ask first because I found the the elevated may the elevated um, plus maze result really really interesting. So these these increase in in uh, or this decrease of anxiety like behavior in the old mice when transplanted with, with junk poop. But my, I was asking myself when, when I read that, could, could this be a negative somehow? Because of course, like anxiety, it has a function. It, 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 it is uh, an adaptive response somehow. I don't know if that, that can have, um, uh, yeah, basically can kind of be, uh, sign of like less perception of risk or, or, or something like that? I was uh, thinking maybe Marcus would take this question. Yeah. Um, that's a great point. Um, anxiety is something that like, or that sort of fear of the unknown is something that is a uh, important thing to have and the uncertainty and, and ability to make a judgment on what is, um, going to be harmful and, and what's not. Um, so the, yeah, the fact that we do see such a response in our aged mice compared to our other, um, or our aged mice who received a microbiota transfer from young mice versus our, our young or our aged control mice is really um, interesting. And, and there's definitely a potential that it might not be beneficial. What I will say is we were expecting to have um, a higher time spent in our open arms for our younger mice. So we might be running into a bit of a floor effect in which because um, 
our young mice spent so much time in the closed arms relative to the open arms, it's a bit harder to judge um, whether their anxiety levels were not actually like higher than say normal as well. Um, but I, I don't fully know um, what the right answer is because typically what we're looking for is uh, that there's a lower anxiety like behavior in, in mice, which is what we see in our aged mice that receive our, our young microbiota transfer. But you're completely right that there is an importance of, of having that caution um, when you're in an environment that's unknown. Um, and yeah, perhaps there's a disruption that is occurring, though I typically, like I said, um, you wouldn't want to have, um, what we see is, is a positive response, I suppose. That's typically what you would want to see. Um, and the time that we're seeing that these HMI spent in the open arms is, is not unreasonable compared to other studies as well. Yeah, sorry, Katie, <laughs> I should have taken this question. Uh, this has been a very long day for me today. Um, yeah, so it, it's a really great question. And um, yeah, um, as, as Katie already pointed out, um, there could be a potential flaw effect. Um, it was actually quite surprising that the young mice um, had this uh, low levels. Um, they um, would normally be around uh, 30 to 40 seconds, which is exactly what we would uh, see in the, in the aged mice, which received the microbiota from the young host. So I, I would not interpret it as um, detrimental in terms of like a less perception of risk. Um, it's also not what we see that that we see a change in the risk aversion, for instance, in in the test um, in the in the water maze test. So I, I guess think the, the other thing that I would add here is this elevated plus maze is a five minute long test, and these mice, like the average of our of our aged mice that receive a young microbiota, they're spending about twenty seconds total in that open arm. So that's not even like a, a tenth of the time spent in the open arm um, compared to the time of the entire test. So. Um, it's not like they're standing out there forever completely exposed. They are like exploring other parts of the arena and spending most of their time in the closed arm or, or in the intermediate space. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't interpret it to be a negative consequence. I think it's actually potentially a benefit, but um, that they're actually out and exploring their environment like that. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes it makes certain total sense. Uh, it's just that, of course, I I I am not. I've never done these behavioral experiments, and and of course, these these are super complicated, and they have a lot of factors. And as you said, uh, it's actually not that not that long. I didn't know it was such a short test, and and yeah, it it it, it makes complete sense. And thank you for the clarification. It's 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 been very very uh, illuminating. And yeah, I don't want to uh, keep you for for too long. I know it's we're already uh, past the hour. Um, I would just like to remind pe the people that to ask, you can just press the the mic button to request access. Yes, if somebody has a last question. And if not, I would like to ask you one last question that is, um, which are the things that you would be more excited about researching if you had unlimited funding, unlimited funding. So if you could have unlimited money to do research, what, what is the thing you that you would do? Marcus and I are in a deadlock because uh, we're taking the time to really think about that. <laughs> Marcus, if you have an answer, I'd love another minute to think. 
Yeah, actually, interestingly, um, I got this question once asked when I started my postdoc, um, like to basically a dream, you have unlimited money, what would you do? Um, and this was a very interesting um, meeting we had at the time. So, um, I mean, of course, like this is now, um, this is quite exciting results, which we got here, but um, now also um, related to the chat, um, of course, to understand more in terms of the mechanisms on, on what are really the drivers here. So there is a, a possibility of factors here, um, could be like specific metabolites. Um, we do see like um, changes um, in, in terms of uh, functions um, in the microbiome, which relates also to what we uh, see in, in the hippocampus. Um, um, there, this, for instance, um, to like further dig into, um, or is there a specific bacteria? Would it be like a supplementation of enterococcus would um, um, resemble these effects um, to understand you further? And another dream, which I once said, um, is to um, like, what are, is there like a microbiome signature uh, for longevity? And, um, and what are the factors like modulating this? Yeah, I think it's really important to kind of know, is there a time where once you cross that age, can you can you not intervene anymore? And by age, I mean either biological age or or just a number, um, but uh, more so biological. So is there sort of a time where you have to take a intervention in order for it to have the most um, benefits? Or or can you intervene when you're very old and, and maybe quite frail or, or diseased with, with something and still be able to rescue that state? Um, so I, that's that's a really important question. If if I had unlimited amount of funds, and I think more importantly, unlimited amount of time, um, I think that the questions Marcus proposed would be very important to the field, understanding the mechanism better um, and and trying to understand what microbe host dialogue is driving this. Um, since we published our study, there was another study that did something quite similar um, where they found also similar results in that microbes from young mice were able to help um, cognitive impairment that occurs in, in aged mice. Um, and they saw that there was one potential metabolite that could drive these sort of cognitive deficits that is derived from the gut bacteria. So maybe if we target that bacteria and we eliminate that bacteria that can produce this isovalera betaine uh, uh, metabolite, maybe we can rescue some of the cognitive impairments. So maybe we don't need a full microbiota transfer, but maybe a targeted intervention to eliminate a specific bacteria. The other thing I'd love to do um, once enough preclinical evidence is built up is to put it into humans and, and see, can we rescue um, aging deficits that might be occurring in, in people? Can we improve the health span of people, um, but also dogs and, and other animals that we've come to love? Um, because I think that's why we do research in the first place. We want to be able to help people and benefit um, animals and, and people. So I, that's what I would strive for. And of course, if I had unlimited money, I'd be able to pay all of my researchers uh, very well. So that would also be a nice dream. Yeah, I, I love the, those answers. And, and and some of them actually speak. We ask our, our listeners what uh, did, did they want to see next? And most of them actually answer uh, that mechanism would be super interesting. But I also love your your answers, Katie, concerning like the translation to not only humans, but also other other animals like like dogs. I think it would be really interesting to see that we are seeing now a lot of 
different initiatives to to expand the lifespan and and the health span of of uh, of dogs we have the dog aging project we have logel the company and also a dow um looking to to fund um yeah to fund uh, research for for um uh, eight, uh like dogs so i i think it would be uh, super interesting and Oh, you just send me, I don't know, again, I don't want, I'm, I want to make sure you don't stay more than you can. So I, I would like to, if, if you need to drop off, just, just let me know. You can let's, schedule, go just... To, let's go to the quarter hour. So it would be like 2.45 my time. So. Okay. Ma Marcus, are you? Okay, good. Yeah, that works for me too. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much because you just, Katie, you just DM me a, a question. So I want to, I want to read it. It's. Yeah. Um, so it, it says, in terms of metabolic pathways um, that are favored in old versus young microbes, do you think colonization with engineered microbial strains can improve cognition? Or do you think this is a case of the hold being greater than the sum of the parts? Uh, yeah, I asked this in light of what Samanian's group has shown with engineering bacteria to produce for EPS and its effect on anxiety behavior? Yeah, I, I really like that question because my next step in my career is going to go towards um, CRISPR and understanding uh, microbial interactions using CRISPR um, and hopefully within the gut-brain axis. But I think there's always a problem when you introduce genetic modification um, because what are the potential consequences of that system if you were to let it out into the wild and um i i'm i'm very much pro you know if if there's no harm and so much benefit why don't we take the engineering route to try to either block functions of some bacteria or enable bacteria to do specific functions that we know are beneficial um but it takes some time to understand are there consequences to that and it's also difficult because well mice and other models are, are great systems translationally we need to understand um they are a little different from humans and so if there are consequences that don't occur preclinically and that do come up clinically i think that also you'd have to have a very stringent study to really understand that but i think using this sort of genetic um engineering of microbes could be a really exciting way that the field goes in the future and i think it's something to really keep an eye on yeah, de definitely, it offers uh, a lot of a lot of possibilities. And then the the same listener asked a second question: How do you think this story ties into the work of uh, the work recently published by Matt Gavin's group, showing that gut educated immunoglobulin A plasma cells can protect the brain? Do you think these uh, fecal uh, microbiota transplants are altering these gut educated cells and interacting with the uh, central nervous system resident cells to exert these effects. So if you could give a little bit of, of, of context, because I actually don't know this, this, this study. Yeah, I mean, um, actually, to be honest, I am, I'm not sure if I also saw that study, but, um, but basically um, there could be a, um, a different uh, routes, um, how, um, like how this could be um, like, what we see like certain um, metabolites um, which we found in, in change in, in the gut microbiota, they could be um, 
um, they could be linking to these, um, or maybe, or maybe Katie, you, you want to take the question? Sorry, I, I started um, the it's, it's the phenomenon starting a sentence and not showing what to uh, finish with. Sorry. It's always a fun journey, huh? Um, yeah, I need to look at this paper again because I, I just pulled it up. It was published in November of 2020. So titled Gut Educated IgA Plasma Cells Defend the Meningeal uh, Venous Sinuses. So I think what um, this question is, is getting at, um, do I think that FMTs are altering these gut-educated cells and, and therefore interacting with the central nervous system resonant cells to exert the effect? I think there's, so there's two kind of things that are coming into play here. So the first one is we know that there are resident immune cells within the brain and those cells can receive signals from, from the external environment. But we also know that there are cells that are educated by external signals like those from the gut and can traffic up into the brain through uh, the, the bloodstream essentially and um, thereby exerting effects in, in taking signals derived from the gut and relaying them that way. Um, and I think what our research could suggest, and we haven't looked directly at this, but since we see changes, um, some changes in the in the blood and in some trafficking receptors on specific immune cells within the blood, this could suggest that um, immune cells are trafficking uh, differently in the aging uh, brain or in the aging body, um, and that our microbiota transfer might be affecting these. We know that um, in other literature, targeting the gut microbiota um, through antibiotics or other means are able to influence these cells that are trafficking like Lysic-C high monocytes, for instance, and that that can affect things like uh, neuron survival, um, for instance. So our study wasn't able to directly answer that question, but, and, and there's also a sort of temporal nature of the education of the immune cells by the gut and by the gut microbiota, does that have to happen early in life or can that happen or, or um, be altered later in life if there's a, a misoccurrence like a autoimmune sort of uh, issue? Um, I Yeah, I, I think that what we're seeing is the gut microbiota are able to alter that sort of gut education of the immune system, um, but how much re-education could occur, I think, is is kind of the question, and, and that I don't think is really well known yet. No, but it is a very interesting potential uh, mechanism. And yeah, we are uh, now on top of the, the hour. Um, so, I'm going to leave some space in case somebody else want to ask anything. But if not, I think it would be a good time to wrap up. Uh, thank you so much, Katya and Marcus, for, for coming here and for staying a little bit longer. Uh, again, the paper we've been discussing is Microbiota from Young Mice Contracts Selective Age-Associated Behavioral Deficits. And actually, there was three main authors. I haven't mentioned this. Uh, besides Marcus and Katie, we also uh, the one of the other first authors was Thomas Bastianson that that couldn't join us today, but but uh, but he was also one of the of the of the main authors of the paper. Uh, but again, thank you so much. It's been super fun, super interesting. I've learned a lot about uh, gut microbiome and how it can uh, affect aging. And I think we have had a lot of uh, translational talk on how these could be in the future um, applied to, to humans. So 
I'm, I'm actually super uh, excited of, of what's going to come next in, in this space. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was a joy to discuss uh, this sort of space with you all. And I think there's it's definitely a field to watch. Um, definitely, there's a lot of potential for the gut microbiota to be um, benefiting host health and treating your microbes well will definitely benefit you. So it's excited to get to talk with everyone. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, um, yeah, it was a really pleasure to uh, be part of um, one of the episodes. So thank you. And thank you to all the listeners that, that uh, were here and participated with questions. Um, we are going to take a small hiatus for the season, but for next season that will happen like maybe 